Kilkelly. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are uh, talking about the final interlude of Kentucky Route Zero, uh, the interlude that comes before Act 5, uh, which is titled Un Pueblo de Nada. Um, it is, yeah, it's the third interlude. Um, it was released on January 5th, 2018. Um, and the title translates as A People of Nothing um, from Spanish. Um, Wow, this is this is good. This this is a really nice palate cleanser after Act Four, with its like before was this long languid sort of thing, but like with this interlude, we're back to that tight percussive storytelling from Acts One and Two. Like this is this is this is so tightly composed and razor sharp. It's a, it's a really refreshing um, little experience. Yeah, it's literally like. Uh... Explore narrative advancement. Explore narrative advancement. Explore narrative advancement. Okay, it's over. You know that's the the kind of structure it has. It's it's very like modal. Like uh, like you can look around the studio, and now you get to see things move forward, and then you look around the studio again. So it's it's very structured, very modal, very tightly paced. Um, there's room to kind of like look around. But at the same time, it's very clear, like, you're going to make a circuit of the, the scene, see the things that are, like, things you can investigate, and then progress. There's no, like, ambiguity about uh, what you're doing. There's, there's no hanging around, yeah. I guess um, this is also kind of... Um, I think that's, that structure works really well, because it's, it's a development of that thing we noted in the first episode of the series, that the conversations are paced like real conversations so like it's it's not like oblivion where you get to explore every leg of the dialogue tree you get to pick a couple of options and then you're moved on to the next event because these are actual people you're talking to and in this case here this is an actual tv studio with an actual broadcast happening so although your character here can space out for a while they have to kind of be brought back down to earth and move along as literally the people and events are milling around them. Yeah. So this, uh, okay. So we finally get to see in this, in this, uh, interlude, uh, what, uh, WEVP TV looks like. Um, and it is a rather sorry sight. <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's this very ramshackle situation and um basically just reminds me of like every anarchist squat i've ever been to in my life uh like everything is falling apart um everything is very disorganized and like it's like an Alpha to Omega live stream, but <laughs> even more shambolic than that. But ontologically so. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's like it's like yes, everyone's scheduling is just really haphazard and people are just kind of like talking over each other and stuff. But then on top of that, like everything is falling apart and also like yeah, it's just chaos, right? Uh so, you know, I used to be a student at uh, Kyoto University um, and really got to see sort of like the tail end of what was left of the 60s there in terms of like sort of uh, communist and anarchist spaces on campus um, that had been sort of fought for and won and then just kind of like 
hung on and just kind of like dragged on. Uh, so one of the most obvious ones was uh, this dormitory that's right uh, just south of the uh, main campus uh, called uh, uh, Yoshida-ryo. Uh, there's also Kumanoryo. Uh, these these two dormitories, um, and you know these are basically like autonomous spaces. Um, the university has to sort of like pay to build them and maintain them to some level. <laughs> uh, oh, no. But they're not allowed to like administer those spaces. Right. So it's the administration is done entirely by the residents. Um, uh, so uh, Yoshida Ryo in particular is a very old building, uh, definitely not up to code uh, at the time that I first came there. Um, and uh, it was it was just, you know, like you can look it up on the Internet. It was extremely ramshackle. I had a friend who lived there and said it was just a nightmare. <laughs> um, like it's it's it reminds me so much of this space because it's like falling apart. Everyone's kind of just doing their own thing. Um, and like swarming with mold. <laughs> Yeah, moldy, like, just, just like, yeah, it was, it, it, there's like no real sense of organization at all. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, they eventually what happened when I was there was that uh, this, um, the, the university uh, had to build a new dormitory because the, the old one was unsafe. So they built this new dormitory, and I don't know what's happened since I left in terms of that. But, you know, there's a lot of political struggles between the residents and the university on this stuff. Um, but they finally got their new dormitory, and you just kind of looked at it and you thought, this is going to fall to shit, like, within, like, two years. It's a brand new building, but there's no way this is going to look good in, like, two years. Like, this is... It's, you know, it's going to be trash everywhere. And and it was kind of the the, the same vibe with the student clubs a little bit on campus. Uh, just kind of like weird sort of utopian leftovers. A key part of what made Kyoto University Kyoto University as like the weird quirky uh, sibling to Tokyo University. Um, and yeah, so it just this entire chapter just kind of gave me a lot of the same sort of vibes of just this kind of like, you know, there's a lot of heart. There's a lot of people doing weird, interesting stuff, but also it's a total disaster. Uh, and, and it's, it's something that lives like under the auspices, like under the good graces of capital as like this weird autonomous space, like outside the zone of accumulation. It's not like they've, it's not like they've established a sort of viable system outside of capitalism. They've just become this like sort of like weird neglected appendage of capitalism, you know, and that that's, that's, that's sort of what I got out of this. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right. And, um, at least one character is in, acutely aware that it's probably seeing its last days pretty soon and then she turns out to be much more right than she could ever re have realized yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> with, with that stuff with the, the student quarters it's like 
a part of my brain thinks that's like, wow, that all that stuff sounds really fucking cool. But then another part of my brain thinks, you know, possibly some of the general discrediting of the left over the last couple of decades may have come from uh, leftists uh, fighting the administration for the right to have ants in their sleeping quarters. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe not the best. Yeah, like I went to I went to some parties there. And it was really cool to, like, just, like, hang out by the sort of, like, you know, under the tarps and just, like, chat about politics and, you know, have your drinks and stuff. But I did have a friend who lived in there and, like, you know, he's, like, a lot of the, as you would expect, a lot of the residents were um, rich, rich kids with daddy issues uh, who were sort of, like, slumming it. Who are like like living living a countercultural life, living a bohemian life uh, out, outside of that, and you know, not really the best suited to like creating a viable community. It's more like just sort of yeah, they just wanted to like live outside of responsibilities to some degree, like. Things were kept up, but at a very low level, you know? I can understand why, for most people, those kinds of spaces are a turnoff. Like, if you had asked me... Like, I I, I potentially could have lived there, right? Like, I, it, the rent was obviously really cheap. But I chose to live in an apartment that was managed by a capitalist corporation because it was clean and worked. <laughs> <laughs> you d- you weren't going to get electrocuted when uh, when you stepped into the shower, you know? Probably not. Well, the showers were so interesting because they were, like, coin-operated. Yeah, it was, like, so retro. Uh, and it just reminded me of the, like, like weird arrangements that they have in the studio here. Um, yeah, but... Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely understand. You look at something like that and you go like how could these people ever possibly run a society, you know? Like it's like it's like okay, you know, I can understand how people in their early 20s or even like they would have older people living on uh, in the in the dorms who were like uh like activists who were hiding from the police and stuff like that. Like they had like underground like hidey hole bunkers like where that like leftists had created in the sixties and seventies to hide from the cops because one of the things was that the campuses had won autonomy to the degree that the police weren't able to come on campus um, during the that period and I remember it was a big thing because the cops did come onto campus and they were looking for people. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I remember them coming on and just kind of giving them like dirty looks, you know, like, like you better watch out, you know, but it, like there wasn't the, the, the leftist culture was like a part of the culture of Kyoto University, but it was definitely like a tiny minority. And it was also something that like was becoming less and less mainstream on campus as just like. You know, people were mostly there to more like l- less live that sort of like bohemian life and more like get a degree, get a job kind of thing, you know. So it was it was it was very similar to this kind of like, yeah, we're like at the tail end of a utopian project 
that we see in this episode here. Yeah, very, very interesting, though, that like, yeah, they're just very colorful. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is so weirdly resonant with what's going on here. Um, it's absolutely eerie. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I could say that, like, absolutely, this uh, this interlude captures something about the pros, the, the, the experience of a utopian project that is like trying to build a different social space aside from the mainstream of, of capitalism. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, that's definitely like the huge theme for this, uh, this interlude, right? Well, it's, it's a, the, the utopian projects, um, both past and present and, uh, ghosts, um, <laughs> in, in general, right? Um, and well, I mean, utopian projects of the past are ghosts, so it's not like they're two topics really. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, we're going to get into that. There's a lot of commentary on Utopia that starts here, right? So this is the last chapter uh, was something completely different. And here we're going to start to get to this discussion of Utopia, which is the core of uh, chapter five of Act Five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're doing that thing again where the interlude sets you up for the content of the following act. We open on a tight shot on what eventually seems to be a door, but it's quite a confusing shot initially. Um, as it pans out, uh, there's there's this like uh, pounding rainstorm going on outside. Uh, it becomes evident that we're actually inside, which is nice uh, because we won't be out in the rain for this one. Um, as we pan out, we can actually see Ben and Bob sitting off to the left. Um, there's somebody sitting, standing to, to the right. Emily walks into frame as a new person enters through the door. Um, and Emily and Maya, this new person, uh, open up the dialogue. Uh, it becomes apparent that Emily is the producer at this TV station, WEVP-TV. I don't think it's named yet, but it, it'll become very clear quite soon. And that Maya is a guest. She's an artist and a, um, an earth sculptor who's coming on for a, uh, a spot on the evening broadcast. Yeah, so a, a new character here. Maya's new. We get some other people on here as well. Uh, yeah, we get a lot of folks who are new, right? Because it's it's um it's the residents of this town, and that um Emily, Ben, and Bob are not actually residents of the town. It's just that Emily works here. Um, that becomes apparent pretty pretty soon. But all of these town residents, what like a dozen of them, are all new characters for Act Five. It's a hell of a move, right? Bringing in. 10 or 15 characters, you know? It's, it reminds me a lot of, like, a Shakespeare play where, like, you know, Fortinbras shows up at the end of Hamlet and it's just this character that's, like, vaguely alluded to prior <clears throat> but is mostly just like, well, where did that come from? Yeah. Also, super weird that Emily, Ben, and Bob are real <laughs> and are actual people and, and can, like, interact with others. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> Yeah, like, what was going on in the Museum of Dwellings where they couldn't hear Conway? I, yeah, I don't know. It's it's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. Such a fun move. Um, Because, like, I was going to say they've been in every interlude, but they weren't in the entertainment. But they they were in limits and demonstrations and here and there along the Echo. And they're in this one. So, in general, Emily, Ben, and Bob are the main characters of the interludes. It's almost like they're living a separate reality. But that reality is about to collide very much with the reality the rest of the um, series has been living in. And it's just, it's just so funny that Emily is the main character for, for now. 
Yeah, and I wonder if there was just a decision made at some point, like, well, why don't we just collapse these two narratives together? That could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, who knows? Um, but the, the dialogue here, uh, yeah, it, it's um, it's this kind of, like, friendly chit-chat. It's like, oh, yeah, our guest is here. Um, this, Yeah, Emily does acknowledge that um, she doesn't actually live in the town. Uh, she commu- commutes to work, and... Um, you know, Maya's like, oh, that must be quite a trek. And Emily's like, I know a few shortcuts. Um, so um, who knows? That's that's maybe why they get disjointed from time and space, is that they spend too much time on the zero getting to work. Yeah, like, we're going to see how isolated this place is in the next act. Like, it's, it's a very weird space. Um, so this rainstorm is happening, right? Uh, just real like a uh, really great audio again. Um, uh, it's it's a very uh, I don't know if it's quadraphonic, but it's definitely stereophonic, and they they use the full range of the stereo uh, separation uh, to give you that feeling that you are in a building with a tin roof and it's really coming down. Um, it works really well and. Uh, you know, I also uh, played through this interlude on a widescreen CRT, um, so I wouldn't get the weird glitches that I had on a 4.3. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the motion of the camera panning uh, here is so smooth on a CRT. It looks incredible. Uh, it Like, you know, it doesn't look realistic, obviously, because the way it pans is not the way that you would move your head around a room. It's very much like you're on a oiled uh, circular platter or something, right? Like they, it's it's like ultra smooth. Um, so uh, yeah, this is uh, really really cool to look around and just looks great all around. Uh, tons of cool little details to see. Very sharp motion and uh, cool lighting effects and sound because the sound the sound does pan. Like if you hear if you hear the TV going in a corner when you pan around, it will come in and out in terms of volume. Oh, beautiful! Yeah, I need to do this again with headphones and really, really appreciate that. Um, it's it, what's remarkable about the visuals here is that like they're still very much Kentucky Route Zero visuals, but they're slightly more high def and like the models have a tiny bit more going on. And it's it's real nice to see these models up close because they're doing this they're doing this like single circular shot thing again that they've been doing since uh, the entertainment and it's it's just real nice to get a good look at these models um you know ben ben and bob are sitting there and they're little little cuties and like emily's got her cool little cowboy boots on and it's just that's fantastic this this whole thing um yeah you and, get these mm-hmm. like uh these like sort of mental projections that emily is doing uh over everything she sees She's a very imaginative person. Yeah, yeah it, it, it kind of reminds me of, like, Life is Strange. Uh, it's, it's got that kind of, like, notebook quality, like, that I remember from, like, light, yeah, the doodles, uh, like, in, yeah, Life is Strange 2 or Life is Strange 1. Yeah, so uh, I wonder if, uh, I don't know how the timing works out there, but I wonder if one was the influence on the other. Uh, but, it, yeah. You also get a you get a new um, cursor if you're playing on the PC version here, 
to look at these doodles and interact with them. It's kind of like a, the skeleton hand with an eye on top of it, uh, which I guess is the WEVP logo. It seems to be, yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's true on the um, TV edition as well. You get that weird hand hand logo. Um, yeah, it's... Gosh, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. I, I do love those doodles, the little overlays, because, like, it's... um Like, we'll notice throughout this whole thing that Emily spaces out a lot. She's, she's a very, I don't know, distracted sort of imaginative person. And you can kind of tell this is this is actually kind of how, how she sees the world and sees these people. Um, you know, because, like, um, a little bit... We'll, we'll talk about, like, slow-mo the crow and the way whenever she pans over that, it's got these little doodles of hearts and stars. It's just like, hey, babe, you know. Um, this is real wonderful blurring... Yeah, blurring of her perceptions into our camera, you know. Um, uh, but with in this conversation with Maya, then um, they mentioned the burial mounds. Maya's been looking at these burial mounds around the town um, while she's been hanging out. Um, and Emily's like, yeah, these, they're weird. It's like, they make me uncomfortable. Um, and that, like, it, it's, there's a line here. She's like, um, it seems kind of weird to build a town on a graveyard. And Maya says, sure, but every every town has a graveyard. It's usually just the town comes first. Um, so setting us up for this this theme of ghosts and history and uh, these kind of like w- the weight of these layers of community history and the, the, the weight of communities gone. Um, and I guess this is a thing that's kind of largely absent from America in general, right? But it's, it's more like an old world thing where you, you can't escape the impression that history piles up, you know, in, in the old world. But um, here they have this unique sort of thing that's usually not associated with the American continent, right? Where they actually have these layers from ancient peoples through to the the past couple of centuries all the way to the modern modern era. Yeah, so like yes and no. Um it's very much a part of Americana to have this kind of specter of the colonized in, um, in, uh, kind of like folksy stories about rural life, uh, or about, uh, life. Yeah. Just, yeah. Like, Oh, like, you know, this, this, this place, uh, is a quote unquote, you know, Indian burial ground, uh, and like, oh, it's kind of spooky. And oh, I found an arrowhead over here. Uh, like that stuff is very cliche uh, in uh, sort of American literature. As far as it goes. So, I mean, it does factor also sort of practically into like um, land claims, uh, like uh, development rights. Right. Like the Keystone XL pipeline being uh, there was an attempted block of that by indigenous people because of their uh, land claims. Um, And so it's definitely something that is more liminal uh, than it is in Europe. Uh, But at the same time, I wouldn't like it's kind of a, something that exists to one degree in memory as sort of like this specter of the genocide that was committed to clear North America for white settlement and for general uh, immigrant settlement. Um, um, but it's also something that like is materially present 
to varying degrees. Like uh, on the East Coast, it's, you know, there's more sort of East and West Coasts, I guess you would say there's 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 more sort of like architecture that that is that is uh, permanent and uh, uh, present. Uh, whereas in the, the plains, the Midwest, um, although in the South, it, it's different. Uh, in, the, in sort of the Great Plains where I live, um, it tends to be smaller artifacts left by nomadic people. Um, so, and then like on top of that, you have the sort of active fight for survival and recognition by indigenous people here to make it not something of the distant past, but something that is uh, a, a part of like the now and the future. Um, so yeah, like it's, it's definitely different from say building a new flat in London and coming across Roman architecture and artifacts down there or unearthing the grave of some King or, you know, something that is like, recognizable in terms of recorded history. Um, uh, and that, that stuff is obviously like in London, it's just everywhere, right? It's, you know, it's, or, you know, any of these, these settlements that have been around forever or Rome or whatever that, that would be. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's not absent. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think abs- absent is certainly the wrong term for it. I guess it's, it's just interesting to me that this is the top of Emily's mind like right at the start of the thing. Um, yes, yes. Because like the mounds are just there. They're, they're built, they're built around, you know? Uh, yeah. They're very much like the neighbors. Yeah. Like not, not the neighbors in the sense of the horses, but in the, the neighbors in the sense of just like, they've like kind of created a coexistence with them rather than trying to erase them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a slightly interesting quirk on that. But you're right, there's like a lot more. There's a lot going on beneath the surface there. And um, I guess it's very interesting for them to like in, in this game about uh, the indignities of life in, in capitalism and, and oppression and all this kind of like grim nightmare sort of um, kind of thing to to actually bring this in. Right. Um, the 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 layers of America's past are, are actually for these people, they're 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 not relegated to the level of like a kind of. Um, like a throwaway Simpsons gag is like oh Indian burial ground or whatever. No, for for these for these folks in this in this um, fiction, this is all stuff that's um, very eerily present and real to them, and that they they can't avoid thinking about. Yeah, and this space is very much like a collection of things that exist on the margins of America, on the margins of what is considered to be American culture or the American techno structure uh, or social structure. Like we'll see that there are multiple generations of sort of para American existences that have existed here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think so Maya brings this up because she has a particular interest in uh, earthen works. She's a, she's a sculptor and uh, she, she, she works a lot with kind of earth, earth sculpture. Um, as Maya settles in to um, 
jump onto the uh, broadcast, Emily can do this like circle of the studio, do a little wander around um, and interact with these doodle overlays to uh, either either talk to people or to just have her own internal monologue about like reflecting on things. So when you can click on the floor and it's like, oh shit, this place is flooding or click on the ceiling and it's like, yeah, the, the roof is leaking. Um, if you look at the window, uh, she just thinks to herself, I hope the neighbors are okay, uh, which we're not sure who the neighbors are yet but they're they're being mentioned um we can also interact we can uh, look at and think about ben and bob as they sit there playing with a radio that they found in the woods and they're um they're screwing with <laughs> at a little coffee table off to the side um also yeah again just very cool to get a close look at these people uh, they're very nice models yeah they're doing like the most like phasmophobia ghost hunter bullshit <laughs> they're having so much fun They've taken a radio they found in the woods and they're trying to fix it up so it'll like tune into the voices in between the stations, man. Uh, so like it's <laughs> it's, so, it's so bong rip and like but at the same time, like that gets to the point, right, of like this is sort of a space of like para-America or like, you know, an, a, a liminal space. Like it's a space in between the stations that they're looking for. That's where this utopia exists in a sense yeah yeah absolutely right um we'll get a little bit more of them i think in the second or third loop around the studio we can also have a little look at the uh just to the right of the door is a overhead projector with two folks sitting there these are uh, serrano and elmo uh, serrano being the person who played at the rum colony and he's sitting there with his lap steel guitar ready to go um next to them is a vid- video data bank uh just kind of set of bookshelves um, and what's what's the line here that we've got quoted? Uh, yeah, yeah. So much of archiving is playing hide and seek with the weather. Uh, so this is, I just think this is just absolutely true. Uh, it's such a insightful comment into the nature of archiving. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, if you live in a very dry place... Um, this never occurs to you, right? So, you know, like I grew up in Kamloops uh, in British Columbia and it's incredibly dry there. So like, you know, it's like, oh, like you want to keep old books around? Like, whatever, like just just leave them somewhere and they'll, they'll be preserved. There's no issue, right? Um, but then I moved to Japan and like the attitude of the Japanese towards preservation and archiving is just like, as a matter of course, different than what you would get in say Egypt, right? Like it is, or even in my hometown for that matter, like it is like, Oh no, like, if the humidity doesn't destroy everything, which is like very likely, like I remember having a book I bought brand new and within a year of it sitting on the shelf, it was water damaged, uh, like by, by the humidity. Um, yeah. Uh, like if it's not that it's the earthquakes that'll get it. Or a tsunami that'll get it. Uh, like, the sense of precarity 
of living in that space because of the weather in a broad sense is just so different. And the archival efforts that need to be taken are so much more extreme. Like the libraries at Kyoto University just have like the most ridiculously over-engineered HVAC systems to create a, a desiccated uh, climate inside of the library so that the books don't rot out, you know? And that's like something that takes constant effort and energy and engineering and repair to keep up. And like, if at any point the budget goes away or whatever, that's it. Like those books are just going to rot out uh, because it's so humid. Um, so it, it's, it's just this hide and seek with the weather thing. I feel like, you know, the more you are in a precarious environment or a humid environment, the more that like this really hits in terms of like, oh yeah, I get it. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I totally feel what they're going through there. Desperately trying to keep these videotapes dry in a progressively falling apart building that is at the mercy of the elements. Yeah. Why, why even bother having nice things if the fucking environment's just going to destroy them, you know? Um, <sighs> yeah, I mean, that's the incredible thing, right? Is that people do, um, still put work into it. Um, so yeah, I, I do love that little line. That is fantastic. Um, Next to the archive is Slow Mo the Crow at the control board. Um, I love the notion that a crow operates the control board. Um, also, Emily is Emily is infatuated with this guy. It's just like the overlay is these like doodles of hearts and stars and stuff. And she's like, hey, babe. And it's like, oh, I love it. I absolutely love Slow Mo. He's fantastic. I mean, who would not be into slow mo if you've trained a if you trained a crow to operate the video board? <laughs> That's incredibly charming. <laughs> it's fantastic. He, like he does a fine job of it too, which is great. Um, next to slow mo is this like image processor, which looks like a huge like modular synth sort of thing. This is strange because like it's it's highlighted and and such, but like. It doesn't seem to really do anything unless I'm unless I'm forgetting something from Act Five that it is relevant to this. I'm not totally sure what the image processor is about. I don't think it does too much. Like I think, uh, yeah, I think it's just cool. Like the, it, it basically looks like a modular synth, and it they do mention. I think Emily mentions that uh, there is like there are like patches for it in the same way that you would put patches on a modular, on a modular synth or a synth in any way in that general, in that general sense. So like, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very like, you know, almost like a switchboard that they've set up to create a particular analog look to their broadcast. Yeah. Artisanal broadcasts. Um, speaking of artisanal broadcasts, if we pan over to the stage for the set, I guess, uh, Rita is sitting there with the cameras pointing at her and we, we see the, the stage dressing spelling out WEVP TV. Um, the, the chat with, with Rita is quite nice. Cause she's, she's like, um, she's like, wow. Yeah. It's weather's real bad. And it's like, yeah, Saturn's in retrograde. Like, oh, okay. Um, which is a fun little refrain that'll keep coming up. Having grown up around hippies, I'm, I'm very familiar with this kind of chatter. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, 
So the evening broadcast begins, and it's just this very nice light chat, very cozy, right? Um, Rita remarks that this is broadcast number one. It's uh, the number is written down here, eight one nine two, and that like you know it's, it's all this kind of reminiscing. She's like, oh well, I, I came out, came in around the fives, you know, so I've only been there for half of them, and then reminiscing about the old shows. We, we used to have night noise and the swap show. There was the bird show, you know, people coming by the studio to drop off tapes and all this sort of stuff. Um, and we're down to it's just the evening broadcast now. Yeah, I, I hope I hope the bird show is just slow mo. I really hope so. It has to have been. You know, he's a superstar. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, big like uh, like long running podcast energy here. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> they're you know they're 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 like over the hill, just kind of reflecting on the golden days and. You know, yeah. It's like, yeah, late, late Chapo energy. Because um, yeah. like, we does say, it's like, well, hey, like, I'm not saying we're in decline or anything like that. But hey, you know, um, we've still got the evening broadcast. <laughs> as as the, the studio is literally falling apart around them. Uh, we're not in decline. No, no, everything's fine. We've got the evening broadcast. Come on. Mm. Um, I think uh, Emily daydreams to herself that the... Uh, the evening broadcast was the first show on this channel that was not produced by the power company. Uh, so the, basically, the Consolidated Power used to run this um, this channel and this this, this transmitter and broadcast. Uh, I think you have a couple options here. It, used to, it was either hateful propaganda or security footage um, that was being put out. Uh, there's also something about uh, like uh, maintaining your power equipment or something. Mm, yeah, maintenance videos, um, instructionals. Um, there's also a couple of uh, possible ways to daydream about this. Uh, one that I liked quite a bit was that um, you can remark that to yourself in your own head that uh, this used to be the morning broadcast until Joel was born uh, because once Sherry got pregnant, uh, she started having really bad morning sickness and had to move the show to the uh, to the evening. Uh, this really strongly hints at like a like la- layers of disappeared community because Joel and Sherry aren't around. Um, and there's a lot of people mentioned who are not on camera, and they're not on camera because they're not in the town anymore. And at some point, Emily does remark that, like, basically the entire town is under this roof right now, um, aside from one or two others. Um, so this is, this is <laughs> you know, as much as Rita might want to claim otherwise, this is pretty strong decline energy. Yeah, and, like, it's... To call it even a town is a stretch. It's definitely, like, a hamlet. <laughs> Uh, uh, and yeah, um, so a couple of things here. I think that, you know, we can see that the, the evening broadcast is significant because it was sort of like their first break with capital into this utopian space. And so to lose the evening broadcast would be in some ways like a great symbolic defeat. You know, they, they have to keep it going because it's at the core of their identity. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, uh, uh, my great uncle used to live in a in a dying little tiny, tiny, tiny village uh, like this. And uh, definitely was I was reminded of of the kind of <laughs> disrepair that uh, you see here. Yeah, absolutely right. Um yeah, the um, I, I had a thought, but it disappeared. Oh no, I guess the, the specific thing as well that I, I wanted to mention is that the um, the power company were forced to allow this stuff on the air. They were forced to sponsor it, 
basically that they're um, they're paying for this um, this capacity. Um, I guess the, the state decided like, oh, it's too much monopoly going on here. You got to do some community broadcasting. Yes, that's right. Which is fun. Um, it's, it's not gonna it's not gonna save people from crushing debt and getting sent to skeleton hell. But hey, you know <laughs> we get uh, we get some cool bird shows on the air. So yeah, fantastic. Um, uh, Rita also uh, invites people to come by the station or to call in uh, on the phone line. She calls out a phone number, which I'm now suspicious might actually be a real phone number and may have been hooked up at one point. <laughs> you could you could actually leave these recordings, which would have been fun. Um, the fact that it has its own area code is pretty indicative of that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed. And she says that we'll start the broadcast with a tape called Un Pueblo de Nada, um, which she describes as being about some people that lived here a long time ago, before the company town, before the airstrip, like over a hundred years ago. Yeah, so this would place this in the like, late 19th century. Which, which I think confirms your theory that they see these, these people on, uh, referred to by this tape are like the late 19th century um, utopian socialists. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, I think that's, that's right. Uh, so we can talk here, I suppose, about the contents of the tape. Uh, well, I guess first there's the, um, the, the little rigmarole you have to do to queue up the tape where like Ron forgot to queue it and you, you have to go and fish it out of the archive. Um, which, which leads Emily to remark that like, oh, this, this whole fucking place is a mess. And like, she's like, time is out of joint and all this sort of thing. Well, the, the whole thing about, uh, the, 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 the competing, uh, organizational systems you know, suggests like the total lack of hierarchy for one, but also it's it's definitely that XKCD comic about starting a new standard. Oh no! Now you have fourteen standards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what this needs is a standard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but once you fished it out, you can hand it over to slow mo, and he'll um, he'll stick it in the <laughs> he'll stick it in the fucking player. Um, and while the tape is playing, uh, Maya wanders over and is uh, is chit chatting with Emily. But yes, this would be the time to talk about this. So, listeners, uh, you'll be glad we did our research because uh, right before getting on this call, I um, I actually wanted to see the opening shot again, so I typed it into YouTube and uh, was like. Oh shit! Hold on. There's. I clicked on the first link and it was like, "Oh, cardboard computer, put put the fucking tape online so we can actually see what's on the tape." And it's 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 quite fantastic. I'm really glad I did that because, uh, gosh, we'd we'd look like fools if we'd have gone ahead with this without knowing what the content of this tape is because it's really important. Actually, it's really important. Yeah. Uh, so this is a very. Um, Reminds me a lot of the, uh, like, National Film Board of Canada style, uh, like, uh, sort of artsy, uh, doc- like, mid-century documentary uh, style. Uh, and so we get this little documentary about the community and about this utopian socialist community that existed here uh, beforehand. And, uh, you know, we start with this, this shot of one of the cats that we're going to see in the next act, uh, which is really cute. Um, but, uh, essentially it describes this community as a, as a, a scientific one, uh, as an intentional community of, uh, utopian socialists who came up from Mexico. Um, and, 
I think this is important because it, like the indigenous people uh, who preceded them, the Pueblo de Nada, the people of nothing, um, were a community that existed within the borders of America, but did not really exist according to those borders. You know, like it kind of suggests the utopia of the geographic uh, space, the geographic map, as opposed to the political one that, you know, that this American border along uh, uh, with Mexico, the southern border of the U.S., could be traversed for utopian ends and could be used freely. Like it suggests a North America that isn't divided according to capital. It suggests a North America that is, is, is open. Um, and actually there's been a very interesting Supreme court case in Canada recently that kind of goes along these lines where, um, I forget the name of the nation, but there was a nation in BC, I believe, that was uh, basically forcibly kicked out of Canada by the Canadian uh, uh, state. And after they were kicked out into Washington state, they the Canadian government declared them extinct because they were no longer within the borders of Canada. So like, like they still live, they still existed, <laughs> but the government said like, you don't exist anymore because you're not within our borders. So the state doesn't recognize you. And they've had this ongoing battle with the Canadian government. And finally, the Supreme Court has recognized their, uh, their hunting and fishing rights within Canada. Uh, and what this means is that they may also have a... Um, they may have uh, a right to participate in resource or land use consultations. Um, and then furthermore, this may imply that the um, indigenous uh, peoples that live south of the border in the U.S. but previously lived within the borders of Canada also have a uh, right to participate in land use and resource discussions. So there's this kind of like erosion of the capitalist state that is happening there, which I think the Pueblo de Nada is also kind of gesturing at, right? Not that these people were indigenous, but that these people were operating according to a logic and a motivation that was outside of the capitalist state's reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really fantastic resonance there, um, and it's 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 lovely to see these um, assertions of like life beyond and below the state. Like that, like there there is a a real stratum of life that is um, indifferent to the political borders and the sort of legalistic kind of regimes, and that just that will will plug along. Yeah, it's um, it's really fantastic. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, let me just pull up the name of that nation so I can get it on the. Cast. Uh, so I don't know if that's going to help uh, because I have no idea how to pronounce it. <laughs> so oh, no. we'll just have to skip over that one. Uh -oh. It's a it, it's S I N I X T. So I have no idea how the X is pr pronounced. Um, 
And obviously, as the uh, as they have been sort of erased from Canada <laughs> up until now, uh, it's not one that I'm familiar with. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, uh, yeah. So getting back to these this utopian community and their sort of scientific in- inclinations, uh, they have this uh, very interesting sort of. Neurath's boat uh, approach to uh, to their construction and to their identity. Uh, basically, they they subject subject. Well, first of all, like most utopians, um, they believe that uh, you know nurture is more important than nature. Right? That that environmental change can change human nature. Um, and, and lead to utopia, lead to a better, a better future. Um, and so following that principle, they reconfigure their environment uh, on the basis of uh, total experimentation. Uh, and this is why they are the people of nothing, because they have no solid ground upon which they operate. They, they like, like Neurath's ship, they are building it as they go and there is no solid foundation. It is, it is a hundred percent open to change and a hundred percent open to experimentation. Um, and the, uh, documentarian, uh, suggests that there must have been some kind of final experiment that caused a moral collapse uh, that destroyed the community uh, without a trace uh, because they were obsessive uh, documenters. They had a library that they kept up very well, which is where the station is now. Um, And uh, so if there had been some kind of physical damage uh, to the community, someone would have recorded it, but there was some kind of, they, they speculate there was some kind of moral collapse, which meant that they, they didn't even feel that there was a reason to record what happened because that like, you know, in, in beer's terms, the system five was gone. Like there, the identity had been completely destroyed by the experimentation. Mm-hmm. And an utter collapse. Um, yeah, that like the, um, the 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 final experiment destroyed the community at its like very fiber, which was it's it's different from like uh, a poison or lava or something like that. This is something that actually erased the basis for the community to even record itself. Yeah, there was there was not even identity for autopoiesis to happen anymore. Um, yeah, so this is uh, you know all really interesting stuff, uh, both because I'm doing my PhD on utopias. And also because, uh, you know, this is really interesting from a cybernetic perspective, right? Um, you know, this, this idea of sort of continuously updating and, and adapting is very in uh, concert with Beer's uh, cybernetic principles. Uh, but perhaps what they were missing was the idea of variety attenuation, Right. They didn't have Ashby's law, so they kind of just like experimented to the point that they had no identity, and be- there was so much variation 
uh, and so little attenuation that they just faded into their environment. Yeah, definitely, right? Because, um, like, the in that kind of, like, beer, Ashby sort of tradition, it's like an autopoetic system. Like, a system in itself is one that has to, like, reject information from the environment to some degree. Like, you need sensitivity to the environment to be able to adapt to it. But if you're adapting too much to the environment, what's actually happening is that the environment is dictating everything to you. Yes. And at that point, you melt into the environment. Um, like, uh, there's there's no there's no degree of isolation. You need, you need some degree of isolation from the environment to be a contained system, distinct from the environment. Um, and if you're... If you're tracking the environment at light speed, you basically are the environment at that point um, and just dissolve. Um, so yeah, it's it's like a kind of it's a dark side of the. It's a potential dark side of like the stuff that beer advocates for of like yeah, hey look be be very experimental and be very sensitive to your environment and adapt very quickly to it. But if, I think if you adapt too quickly, you'll just be. Uh, like it'll, the trees will be telling you how to how to behave, and you won't have any behavior of your own. Yeah, you just kind of oscillate out of control. Um, uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, we can think about this process in a, in a process based way as like you need to slow the process down to some degree. Uh, and attenuate what's coming in uh, as you get closer to that system five, right? That, you know, the system ones do the least attenuation, but by the time you get to system five, it's got the most attenuation, right? And and they, the Pueblo de Nada did not follow that principle. And so their system five just got annihilated. Yeah, so, is, I mean, this is incredibly interesting, this video uh, from that perspective, uh, and of course, it also sheds light on what we're going to see in, in Act 5. Yeah. And like also a classic thing that uh, Kentucky Route Zero does, where like very interesting stuff is hidden out of band. Because as this tape plays in the studio, you can hear it from the monitor, but all the dialogue is in Spanish. And if you don't speak Spanish, then you're not going to really be able to track it. And also, even if you do... Uh, Maya and Emily are chatting and you're probably focusing on the text more than you are on the spoken dialogue that's going on in the background because that's that's not it's not like subtitled in the textual interface of the game uh, it's not like the phone calls in the previous act where they were both played played in the audio and put into the, the, the text interface this is purely through audio so it's very easy to miss this um, the reflections here are interesting because like Emily can reflect on I mean, in her spacing out in between spoken lines. I think she spaces out while Maya speaks, so you don't actually get much of Maya's dialogue. Um, but Emily can reflect on her role in the making of the tape, like, um, and she can, like, you know, say that, like, of those notebooks that the uh, people left, uh, very few of them are left behind, and, like, most of them got taken to the university for the Archive of Utopian Thought, uh, which is a fun little detail. And when Maya asks, is this actually history, or is it a fun story, um, Emily... It kind of reflects that, like, yeah, this, it, this it's really nice to have this portrait of the people who lived here, right? Um, and what they were like and how they communicated. And that people should know. A community shouldn't just disappear, even when it disappears. Uh, it's a nice little sentiment. Yeah, I think um, that there's certainly documentary evidence left of these people. But there is a certain degree of kind of, like, Adam Curtis-esque... 
uh, creative speculation <laughs> that is being done in the documentary as well, which is maybe why Emily is uh, hesitant to call it a historical document. Uh, it's like, well, it is, it's a record of them. I, I'm not really sure if I would call it history or not, but, you know, it's cool. Well, because, yeah, she knows that it was her and Rita that made the tape, and she's maybe fully aware of how sketchy Rita's account of things might actually be, or, like, how sketchy her own account of things might really be. Yeah, you can kind of, like, choose answers that get to her, like, participation in the process and, and you know, you know, seeing how the sausage was made, you know? Mm-hmm. Um... Fun tape, though. It's really, really nice to look at. Um, once we're back on set, uh, this is really kind of funny because, like, Maya, Maya sits down with Rita again and they're just chatting about stuff like, oh, you know, it's really raining outside. Where, do you have somewhere to stay tonight? She's like, yeah, Ron offered me his loft. And he's like, oh, honey, that's not a loft. It's the barn. And Ron's like, you know, it's, it's it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not haunted. And it's like, no, it is haunted and all this kind of thing. It's just that they keep going and Emily is spacing out, right? She's just thinking to herself and then she's like, do they know we're rolling? And waves at them and like, oh shit, yeah, we're back. Uh, it's just a really fun little composition. I love this bit. Yeah, this this feels a hundred percent like an Alpha to Omega live stream uh, situation right here. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh fuck. Um, I don't know. Is this more or less chaotic than an Alpha to Omega? Is it, is Emily a better producer or worse than than Tom? I don't know. They'd have to go head to head to find out. <laughs> Uh, well, Alpha to Omega has no producer, which is the thing, right? So, uh, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I would say, uh, uh it's interesting because like Emily constantly spaces out, but she's also the person who's supposed to be on top of everything. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> which just goes to show like how ramshackle this whole operation is. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's. Yeah, it, it, I mean this this is this is more chaotic for sure. Mm -hmm. I would say <laughs> Tom is fairly on top of his game. Actually, but they did they did start off they did start mostly on time though, which is something that we cannot say we ever do on Alpha Two Omega. No, <laughs> I I love Emily's just like extreme undiagnosed ADHD. You know, it's it's beautiful to behold. You know, um, and she's supposedly supposed to keep this place going. Um, uh, yeah, what they're going to get up to next is that Ron brought a tape uh, he wants to play, so Emily takes the takes the <laughs> extremely ADHD move of just wandering around the studio and ignoring what's going on. Um, when she can talk to Ben and Bob, she's like, what the fuck are you two doing? And they're they're searching for ghosts in the static, which um, incidentally is actually a, it's a title of one of the tracks on the soundtrack, so that's fun. But yeah, this is this is them, and again, the, the audio here is wonderful because they do the, the radio tuning between stations trick um in time with like the dialogue as it develops which is really nice and um, also like the, the the sounds of the storm gradually intensify over the course of this this like 40 minutes or so and it's you don't really notice it but it just keeps getting more intense and then they add this like horrific radio static to the mix and sudden and like after a while you're like why is my head pounding and it's like oh yeah because it's a fucking storm and like you know, slow-mo is going nuts with, like, remixing video on the fucking console over there, and these two goons are playing with this radio. <laughs> like, it's just it's just all storming through your head. Uh, but a very subtle, gradual ramp-up in intensity. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, it, it, it's... Uh, the, the thing I like the most is uh, the way that um, the puddles on the floor get bigger and bigger. They do. 
Yeah. And after, after a while, it's like ankle deep or something. Yeah, it's just like absurd. Like, she's like, well, the, the electronics are getting in that. Uh, I don't know if that's safe. Yeah, better pretend I never saw that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Um, she also remarks on her socks being wet. And she's like, oh, shit, I hate this. I hate having wet socks. Um, but there's there's a fun bit here where it's like um, Ben and Bob are like, you know, scanning through the stations and like, hey, ooh, that was definitely a, vo- a ghost voice, right? Did it, did it say dogwood? It's like, nah, it sounded like frogwood to me, you know, this kind of thing. Um, this this back and forth. Um, Weaver Weaver coming through. Yeah, maybe. For, like, actually distinctly a possibility. <laughs> like, very, very much a possibility here. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Weaver, because, like, they're looking for the ghosts in between, and that's, that's Weaver, right? Definitely, right? Um, there's some fantastic lines then here, uh, where Ben says, um, you know, they, well, they're, they're kind of like, you know, well, was it frogwood or dogwood? And Ben is like, I guess it doesn't matter. The ghost voices don't really come out until you play back the recording later. And then Bob says, they only exist in recordings, like a copy without an original, a mirror reflecting something that isn't in the room. And then the two response prompts for Emily are the words weird and eerie, which I think has to be an intentional nod to Mark Fisher's The Weird and the Eerie, because like there's so much of this that they're kind of implicitly building on here, right? Um, yeah. That's a fun little book, actually, um, where... He's kind of like de- dis- disentangling these two concepts of the weird and the eerie, um, and especially in like horror media. And and I think he a gloss on it would be to say that he's he says that the weird is when two incompatible realms butt up against each other, um, and are, there, there's an adjacency that shouldn't be there, uh, or like a presence that shouldn't be there. And the, but the eerie is more about the absence of something, usually an agent. It's like. You know, clearly this monument was built by someone, but that someone is missing, and that's eerie. Or like, say, in, in Alien, when they walk into the um, the control room with the, like the space jockey, and it's just it's it's a dead it's a dead like corpse that's been killed by one of the aliens, or whatever. And it's just very eerie because it's like this is clearly an intentional structure, but the agent that made it is missing, and that's eerie. Yeah, it's it's the burial mounds, right? It's the burial mounds, exactly, and that's that's uh, that's what. If you click on eerie, that's what Emily brings up, right? That the it's there at the burial mounds, um, and that they are like a reflection. That the, the people who lived there made them, and they're gone, but their echoes are still here. Yeah, this uh, copy without an original follows like Baudrillard's uh, definition of the simulac- simulacrum, right? Uh, so yeah, that's that's a it's another sort of media studies thing there. <laughs> classic media studies stuff coming up in this uh, in this one um um and then towards the end of that bit of dialogue there's some fun enough like uh, ben is like sometimes i think it's more like the recording itself is a ghost like that's what ghosts are recordings of events that didn't happen when something keeps leaving new marks even after it's gone false memories yeah i don't know it's fun yeah it's so a lot of fun here that really gets to um the nature of this space like um the utopian projects that didn't blossom into anything, uh, those are ghostly, right? Because they are, they're gestures towards a non-existent history, right? Um, where like, oh yeah, like a non-capitalist history, uh, a communist history, right? Mm-hmm. There's also something here where those those recordings keep causing new events 
Like it's, um, I guess it's like the kind of Dulles and Guattari thing of like the strat- stratum, where the the strata burst burst through each other, and like something from the past actually like indirectly causes a new event or a new conjunction of things. Um, and that's that's a kind of weird thing, right? It's like the thing itself is absent, but it keeps having causal force in the present. Um, and it's it's in a weird way those kind of ghosts and those echoes are. It's not just that they're um, passive reflections of a thing that used to be real. They are still real because they are still having effect and they're having new effects constantly as, as the, as the memory or as the recording is brought into contact with new things, it keeps generating new things happening. And so in a sense, those are like false memories because it's like the, the agent proper is absent, but there's something weirdly agential going on. That's the thing about the recordings, right? Is that the recordings are extant even though they're recordings of things that didn't happen, right? So they 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 have a kind of virtual existence um, as opposed to something that's simply non-existent. Yeah, like a unicorn or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that's the difference of like, you know, the difference between the facticity of the past and the and the history of the past, right? It's also probably worth reflecting on the amount of this game that is delivered through recordings and tapes and echoes, right? Because, like, you know, we had, at least in Act 2, we had the stuff that was delivered as, like, the security footage, you know? And rec- recordings of events that may well no- may well have never happened. There's the uh, the email logs at the gas station... There's the the reviews in the entertainment, uh, and uh, like um, Junebug and Johnny's uh, like uh, uh, creation of their their selves being caused by the minor uh, the minor recordings down in the mine, a haunted mine, literally haunted mine. You know, the ghosts of the past do bur- burst through constantly, right, and generate new things. Um, yeah, but probably Junebug and Johnny are the most the most emblematic of that kind of generative capacity of like these prior stratum to like burst through and like combine with something new to then generate something entirely new. Yeah. And then there's like debt, right. Um, that the recordings of debt, uh, the, the, the weaver weaver system at the plant. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like the, the debt thing is interesting, right? Cause like, yeah, the, the, like, um, the debt itself is maintained through these, this recording mechanism, but also like, I guess you have all that stuff in capital where, capital and investment and debt do something weird with time in that like the past investments are constantly re-impinging on reality and in some sense reality is more and more a sock puppet of the past and that like prior investments need to still be valorized and so everything you do right now is being dictated by a past event Uh, that is like not just a past event it's a recording of a past event that still insists on being real today yeah, well, I, I think it's it's maybe more accurate to say that like it's a predominance of like the virtual, right? Because what's what 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 debt does in capitalism is that it allows you to concretize a possible future uh, through that sort of virtual existence of the debt ledger, right? That like you know I will like oh I'm going to take a loan out to buy a car. And then so my my future for the term of that loan is concretized according to that debt, right? Um, and so these things, 
it sort of becomes like, yeah, there's a kind of like path dependency that gets locked in by choosing certain futures according to capitalist imperatives of investment and then those um, accumulating. Uh, so it, it, because, you know, I mean, the, 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 the predominance of the past is a constant, right? Like capitalist or not, we, we live in a path dependent universe, right? That, I mean, at least if you don't get into like general relativity, you know, um, it, it's, uh, if I, if I cut my leg off as a kid, then I don't have a leg as an adult, right? This is, it doesn't, doesn't have to be capitalist, but the thing that's weird about capitalism in that sense is that it, it draws these futures into a concrete present um, by by means of records, right? Like you know, double book, double entry bookkeeping, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good explanation of that. Um, and for Conway and for Emily, these ghosts are entirely too real. Like they're it's 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 not a matter of like oh ghost, you know, a fictional haunting or whatever. These are extremely real. Uh, because their their present is dictated by this this virtuality. Um. Well, and I mean, this really gets back to Marx's line on the in the in the 18th Brumaire about you know weight of past generations weighing on us like a nightmare, uh, or the fact that like we create our utopias through LARPing. You know, it's obviously not his exact words, but to paraphrase, us, like, we we LARP the the revolutions of the past. So. You know, they're living in this utopian space and it's really highlighting how when you try to strike out into an alternate future like that, you have that weight of past generations upon you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) The weight of the past generations, uh, it's really going to come to a head in the next act. And the the weight of this fucking rainstorm is is about to flatten this place as well. it's it's literally like a biblical flood is what we're seeing here. This is this is yeah. This is just I mean this is like Noah. This is like Noah on the ark, you know. <laughs> it really is. And like Emily knows and Emily kind of seems to know what's coming because she does like daydream like what if this whole place was just blasted off of the map? Cuz she she spends a lot of this thing ruminating on the evident and Im- impending collapse of this community, right? There's not many people left and it seems weird that we're hanging on, right? Um, which I think is what she actually gets to when she rejoins uh, the trio on stage, Rita, Maya, and Ron. Ron's sitting right there with them um, after his tape and uh, Rita's like, you know, what, what, what was that tape all about? And he's like, everything on that tape was wild. And he does this wonderful little gesture, uh, which I love. Um, <laughs> also, it's really fun that Ron is one of the only people here who has, like, facial detail because he has glasses and a beard. So, like, he, ha- he has much more facial definition than anyone uh, and has this really wonderful little animations to go along with it. Um, but Emily spaces out during this while they're debating, like, oh, were, were the horses wild, even the dogs and this sort of thing? Um, yeah, so this is where we start to get some more info on the neighbors, right? Uh, that the neighbors are the horses that are around. Yeah, the the, the horses in the town, which um, which is I guess that's a fun little joke. The neighbors or whatever. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, maybe you, you like honestly, it's, it's it could be the it could be the inspiration. Um. Uh. And 
I think there's some discussion in here about them. Like, basically this point that the Pueblo de Nada let them free, right? And and so uh, there's a debate about, are the horses wild because they were domesticated? And at some point they were let out. And then he's kind of like, Ron's kind of like, well, I guess they're like feral, right? Which is like being wild after you've been domesticated. Uh, which is kind of the situation that any of these utopias find themselves in, right? After having been subsumed, grown up and subsumed in capital, trying to be wild, uh, you you get into this different mode of existence, which he calls feral. Yeah. I've always kind of maintained that, like, um, if, if we get a successful revolution, the revolution isn't really for us. It's for the generations that come after it. Because we're we're already baked, you know. Uh, we've we've had the brain damage. It's like when you get a generation that grows up within communism, that you'll start to see the real kind of human subjects emerging from that. And um, I don't know. It's it's fun, it's fun to think about, like you know, if if I if I grow old to see that kind of thing happen, you know, or or if anyone were be like they'll go down to the community store or whatever, and the, like the the kids working there will be like, yeah, yeah, grandpa, whatever, your lawnmower, we get it, and then have to like nod to the new guy. It's like <laughs> he's from the before time when they had property. Just play along, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like okay, your chair, whatever. You know, they just have to like entertain all these oldsters who are like insisting that they have like their own their own like fucking claim on a lawnmower or whatever i don't know yeah 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 (laughs) yeah totally i mean you know there's a way in which that's like yeah like it's it's like beer says right we we want to have future generations that are unrecognizable to us like that's a good thing um to adapt to the pace of change um so yeah uh Totally, I expect that. Yeah, the 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 second generation under communism, real communism, would be uh, radically different from uh, from our generation, uh, and even from the Zoomers. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, <laughs> I hope they're very different from the Zoomers. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, while this is going on, uh, these are kind of interleaved. Like, it's, it's actually quite hard to follow both of the lines of dialogue here because some of it is uh, the three folks on stage talking about the, the horses and the possibility of horses ever, ever being wild. Um, like, are, are there any wild horses left? All this sort of thing. But then the rest of it is Emily spacing out and kind of reflecting on a few things. Um, there's an interesting a, a choice that I found quite compelling was to, like, reflect on her misremembering the name of a donut shop. Um that like she 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 was sure that it was called Donut Party, but then, you know, when they got back to it, it was just called the, the Donut Shop, and there was a there was like a party supplies shop next to it. Um, but she then says to herself that the weird part is I still fantasize about stopping by the real Donut Donut Party some morning and having one of those amazing crawlers. In fact, the desire has only grown more intense, <laughs> and like it's it's like this is a kind of a haunting, right? Like like Ben was saying, like a non-real event that still has this very real pressure on you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, you know, for the oldsters like us who were, you know, young during Occupy, like there is that kind of, that kind of like uh, ghost 
that you get in your head of like, well, it was a complete clusterfuck, but what if it wasn't a clusterfuck? <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> like, like, what if the positive moments I saw there were actually indicative of, of something good and not just a farce? Uh, Absolutely. Um, she then goes on to, like, there's some really good lines here that I'll just read out. Um, so quoting, quoting from Emily's internal dialogue, um, that's a kind of a haunting, a, go- a kind of ghost like Ben was saying, but everything is a ghost around here these days. It's a ghost town with people still living in it against all reason. There's always been people here after the Pueblo de Nada, the community airstrip, then the company town, then WEVP. Somehow, just as the last group d- dies out, some new utopian project always finds a way to take hold. What is it about this place? It must be the well. The Pueblo de Nada vanished. The airstrip went bankrupt. The company town buckled under the guilt and exploitation. Even the first people here. All we have left of them is their graves. I just hope our ending isn't so dramatic. Maybe we can just decline peacefully into irrelevance and then one day stop, completely unnoticed. That sounds nice. I'd never say that out loud. Everyone works so hard on it. But it's a little perverse that this little community news program goes on strong while the community itself is barely hanging on. A leftover reflection. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a really heartfelt little kind of set of lines, you know? Yeah, absolutely not going to come to pass. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Poor Emily. <laughs> she doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many interesting things here, right? Is that, like... You know, uh, like Marx talking about uh, the, uh, the 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 subterranean mole, uh, the communist mole uh, burrowing through the ground, right? And it, it's it's going to pop up into plain air, and that's exactly what's going to happen through the well, um, right? We have our our main crew, our main crew uh, is going to pop up through the well from the underground, um, and then. Uh, you know, the other thing is that, like, yeah, you uh, to to exist on that communist horizon is to exist in a ghostly space. There's a kind of like spectral gravity that pulls people out of temporality and the reality of capitalism towards something that is filled with corpses of past attempts to break with it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, you know, I, I think it's true for most people who have sort of been affected in this way, been pulled by that gravity out of the mainstream. Um, I mean, obviously there are the cases of the people who would just like completely sell out, and, and break with that that space and just like uh, you know go back to business as usual. Uh, but for most of us, it's like our lives were all derailed by this gravity. Like like you know, if I consider my life in terms of what I ought to do, quote unquote, in terms of my life trajectory according to the dictates of capital, uh, my life was destroyed by utopian gravity. Uh, like I was pulled out of that normal progression, escalator-like progression of my life path into a kind of like weirdo, like non-existence at the fringes of society. Uh, 
And that's what happened to these people, too. It's what happens to most people who get attracted by that strange attractor. Um, it's, it's uh, yeah, I think it's pretty profound. There's something, there's something also quite interesting there in that um, I think when, when people bemoan the sort of like repeated and failed attempts at like utopian projects, it's like, it's kind of framed as being this like indulgence that people go on to like, oh, look at them. They go off and they waste their time and then they fuck it up or whatever. But there's, there's something here in that like, this is very often not really a choice. This is something that the, the, the sort of winds of time just like blast you into. Um, and you're kind of left, you're left with, you're, you're stuck there because that, that just, that just ends up being what your life is, even if it wasn't necessarily what you set out to do. And there's also like, maybe, maybe nature just despises a vacuum and it, it, it wants to fill this little gap with something utopian, even after, the last one fails. And so there's a, there's a sort of necessity of having some kind of weird pocket dimensions happening uh, all over the place. And that if, if, if nature conspires to put you there, then you will end up there um, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, right? Cause like you look at sort of like the extreme cases, like those people that were like hiding from the cops in the dorms at Kyoto university, like decades after any serious political as activism. Like there was just a dude who was in the Japanese Red Army, I think, who like came out of hiding like last year, I want to say, and like made a proclamation that like, now that COVID is here, it is the time for us to rise up and the revolution to happen. And it was like, obviously nothing happened at all. But like this, like he had been... Like, he was actively being hidden by his comrades from the authorities for decades uh, and then finally pops up. Or, like, you know, the people who, like, are the sort of dead-enders at some trot sect, right, that are just just keeping the, 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 the paper sales going and, like, parasitizing whoever they can hook into joining the organization, Uh like, these are people whose lives have arguably been ruined completely by this utopian gravity. Ruined by Trotsky, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it, it's like, well, not to mention all the people who died in the commune, right? Like, it, 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 is a, it is a pile of smoldering corpses is what we are building upon. Uh, and and we are just, we're just surrounded by ghosts. Um, and this is... Uh, you know, I, I I think you're absolutely right that it, it, it's there is a sort of a sense in which like, oh, you're off doing something utopian. That must be nice. Right. But for like odds are the opposite is true. You know, odds are you're going to be that junkie for the rest of your life who had that one hit of of exploding into the possibilities of a communist horizon and just had this incredible high of like, I am existing outside of normal time. I'm existing in like, you know, something incredible. And then the rest of your life is just disappointments forever. Right? Like this is, it's not an indulgence. It's 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 only a grass is greener effect, right? Where there's someone slaving away in the rat race, and they look at somebody like that, and they're like, "Oh man, like stupid bohemians, like 
just like man and like they have it so good or like i was talking about the, like the you know the rich kids with daddy issues at the dormitory right like it's it's easy to see it from that perspective but actually like you look at the overall life trajectory and this is a kind of like you're being waylaid by fate in a sense yeah it's it's something that i've actually kind of ruminated on over the last couple of months right because like like there's a sort of aspect of this um leftist thing or the the marxist weirdo thing that we're doing that i'm very cautious of because i think we see ample evidence of people kind of like half deliberately destroying their lives or like half accidentally but like then there's this kind of like weird self-lumpenization that people undergo to like live up to revolutionary potential and i've known people who you know, the only way I can really describe it is that they fucking destroyed their own lives because they thought the revolution was coming somehow. Like, you know, quit quit their jobs and, like, kind of abandon their kids and stuff like this to, like, go do protracted people's war in Swindon. And it's like, motherfucker, you're just totally wrong about all that fucking stuff, you know? But then if I were to entertain those th- thoughts too much, I would just fucking walk away from all these 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 things, right? But, like, there's it's very hard to thread that needle between, like, keeping the fire burning... So that maybe someday some generation can uh, complete the project versus like delusional, stupid bullshit that like people either accidentally or kind of half deliberately get into and then can't really recover from. Um, and that le- leads to extremely tragic lives, right? There's the, the tra- there's the tragic lives of people that got fucking massacred in the commune or whatever. And then there's the kind of weird tragedy of like, somebody who you can tell kind of just fucking ruined the possibility of living peacefully and like supporting their the people they should have been supporting you know their kids or whatever that's that's a different kind of tragedy um you know maybe when like i i I keep thinking of like a fucking a line that esri had ages ago that like when you're confronted with a 14 year old maoist you might start to think that all of this shit was a mistake yeah 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 because it all it all it it at the moments of the lowest ebbs of revolutionary energy, it all seems absurd. And then it doesn't. And yet there's a, there's a core, you know, it's, um, you find the good stuff again. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's this spectral space that is like, yeah, generally that, yeah. I mean, there's a kind of cosmic horror dimension to all of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, the 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 revolutionary tradition and like Marxism is a kind of like informational basilisk that like it kind of it kind of ruins your brain once you've seen it and like once once you know the truth and you you can't you can't you can't you can no longer go back to the illusion you know and you you can I mean in some in some cases you, you can no longer like stop yourself from seeing the world in very extremely negative ways and that can be extremely self-destructive so like it's it, yeah it, it's like when when pe- again people sneer at the like oh these utopians or whatever they must be having a great time in this indulgence it's like no we've we've seen the basilisk and it's done a lot of damage to our minds <laughs> <laughs> and we just have to live with that you know yeah which is it's so ironic because i was just having a conversation the other day with somebody about uh about china or saying like, yeah, like, you know, you can live a normal life in China. Like this kind of like, I've seen the basilisk person is exactly what the quote unquote communist party, like most fervently screens against, right? Like they, they, like their, their like quality control for their citizens is to like, you know, it's like when you're on the, 
they have those like conveyor belts of like the little chicks and then you see the defective one they throw them into a separate bin <laughs> yeah. uh i think there's a scene like that in like koyani scotsy or something like that uh that that's exactly what i picture the the communist party in china being like is like oh that one's a free thinker that one's read too much marx like you know They've got a heretical interpretation of Marx, so into the bin with you. Uh, like, you know, uh, whereas, in, whereas in capitalism, you're just kind of like structurally pushed to the margins of society and your life is ruined, right? And, and by heretical reading of Marx, we mean has read the critique of the Gotha program. <laughs> but hey. Has, has read like literally anything that would suggest that, that the, the, the Xi Jinping uh official reading of marx which was published recently is uh is you know bogus right uh i mean because they still like they still do marxology you know it's it's not like totally just lip service they they actually do like their own kind of weirdo ultra rightist marxology um yeah yeah incredible i don't know <laughs> Uh, yeah. Do you ever wish some days that you hadn't seen the basilisk? Very occasionally I start to think that. But then I'm, I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's better to know what, what's up, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, that, it's that, that classic Simpsons episode where, like, you know, they take the crayon out of Homer's brain and <laughs> you know, it's like he, he, that he, like, you know, re, uh, re, returns to ignorance, whereas Lisa is stuck with a, a clear-eyed understanding of the world uh so yeah it's that it's that ignorance is bliss thing um and i mean i i, I think you know one of the big things that drove me towards this though was just being disturbed at 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 the chaos that was surrounding me and and, and all of the strange things that were happening and wanting to like get some kind of grip on my environment uh so you know it's very much like reality inflicts this on you it's not a choice yeah yeah it's like yeah it's like um oh you know you really did a lot of damage to yourself by looking at the tiger that was creeping up on you i was like yeah but like it stood on a twig <laughs> and it it was it was clearly a way this was going to go and yes i shit myself but like i saw the tiger you know it's, it's, <laughs> Uh, maybe in some very vague sense, I might have been better off not seeing the tiger. But hey, you know, this is how things went. You know, well, we, you know, we always get to like maintain that that little flicker of revolutionary hope in our breasts in terms of like, you know, like oh, it's it's like that ben Benjamin line, right? Of like, you know, the 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 Jews forbade prophesizing about the future because they knew that every moment was a straight gate through which the Messiah might enter is like, you know, like, could happen any time, man. The rev, the rev. Uh, <laughs> this is all, you never let go of that feeling. Uh, and, and to contemplate letting go of that feeling is like the ultimate, like, Nick Land, just like ultimate doomer bullshit. Uh, it's, it's like, well, what do you do after you know and then you give up all hope? Like, there's, there's nothing left. Uh, just pure cynicism and, and misanthropy. I think that the, the core hope of that really is, like, once you strip off all the Marxology and the fucking weird big head fucking beard stuff, the core hope is that you can believe that the world is not necessarily naturally this way. Like, that it wasn't written into the metaphysical structure of the universe that it had to turn out this way. That, like, different ways of living could actually be possible. 
And it's a very simple hope, really, at the, at the core of it all. And I find that that core hope is actually very easy to hold on to. It's a lot of the fucking wacky, dumb beard shit that's mm, quite a bit harder to, like, always have a, a very solid grip on compared to the core hope. Well, what you're describing is just basically the core of utopia, right? That the world could be otherwise and that otherwise could be better. Yeah. What's that? What's the, what's the, what's the there's like a, a David Graeber line, which I absolutely love. And I'm going to butcher it slightly, but it's, it's, it's more or less this, but like that the, the dark secret at the heart of the world is that it's something we make and that we could make otherwise. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah that's, yeah. that's, I think that's the throbbing core of revolutionary and utopian thought, right? What, whatever, whatever you think about whatever letter Babel wrote to fucking whoever, all that shit aside, that's the core of it. Like, the world could, in fact, be otherwise because it is something that is made. Um, yeah, like, segueing on to something that has nothing to do with that, uh, it's Serrano and uh, Elmo with the weather. Um, this is quite nice because, like, the, there's this overhead projector with these, like, uh, ink and, like, dye swirls in water that, like, are accompanying Serrano's lap steel. And, the, like, the, it's projected over the like text of the weather report being read out that's that's quite lovely it's so cool and it, it's just again another uh uh chance for them to show off their physical modeling like these uh these fl- fluid mechanic this fluid mechanics engine that they have built into the system uh where the dyes will just like kind of swirl uh accurately to what you would kind of expect the, uh, of them uh to do if they were uh inserted into mineral oil exactly i, I really i yeah I, I i need to look at a couple of plays of this again to see if like the uh, the swirls are different every time i'd wager they are um but i they might be or they might just be like you know uh the uh, uh it might just be kind of like newtonian system where it's like you you insert the same stimulus into it and you will always receive the same outcome yeah maybe mm, i don't know they, they do a lot of physical modeling stuff like it might well be there might be some stochasticity to it. Um, while this is going on, uh, Emily can have a little chat with Elmo, um, and they're kind of like it's. Elmo brings up that um, well, no. So Emily asks, "Where do you get all this gear?" And he's, uh, or like, "How do you do this?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, they're just candle dyes." And the projector I got from Weaver, our resident ghost, um, she apparently used to put on these lectures where she would just do these absolutely inscrutable slides and ramble for hours and nobody would understand us, but she left the projector behind, so Elmo gets to use that now. Um, yeah, this is just, it's a lot of this, this stuff of ghosts again and, like, this absence, uh, effects without a presence and so on, and, like, but this is tying it down to Weaver specifically, um, rather than just being about ghosts in general. I love the idea of, like, Weaver's, like, weird quant bullshit that... <laughs> upper graduate school level like quant wankery uh on her youtube channel you know it's just but except it's if it's being broadcast on the channel so like if you want to watch that channel that's what you have to watch uh (laughs) like like weird like non-euclidean geometry and shit that she's uh screwing around with yeah that's what public access tv is all all about right just crank bullshit um (laughs) <laughs> there's a fun line here that there's a fun couple of lines about like well oh she's a ghost do you think she's dead well it's like well does it matter and emily says i guess you're right a ghost is just an absent person whether they're dead or not 
so yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of our fun kind of Fisher with the eerie, you know, the, the sort of absent agent who is still very much present because of their effects. Um, it's good stuff. Elmo was wondering, like, do you think she'll get us tonight um, with, the in, with the interventions? Um, and yeah, there's, there's a bit from Emily then about, like, how they could never track down where she was broadcasting from, and they could never find any site where she was tapping into the cables either. So it's still very much up in the air as to how this is going, going how, how she's actually doing these interventions. Because she's, she's hijacking this transmitter. It's, it's like, well, it's, she's hijacking this, this station specifically. Um, but there's, they, they don't really have an explanation as for how that's happening. Also, like, later there's a bit of a thing with, like, I think Ben tried to do a model of how she could be doing it, but it, t- it would turn out she'd need an incredible amount of power to, like, overwhelm their transmitter. Um, so still very much an open question. Unless she has access to infinite skeleton energy from the power company somehow, which... No, that's exactly what I thought, is, like, yeah, like, actually she probably could get that much power, because, uh, like, she probably has a back-end access to the power plant. She got a tap somehow. Um, back on the set, they're going to put on a tape about caves when the phone rings. And this this guy, uh, Jeff, um, is just rambling about the trash raccoons and like his, his adventures with those, which is quite fun. Oh, this is this is just the saddest shit. This is like, 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 oh, just just so sad. Like. Like, there's no one on the switchboard to cut him off, and they're just broadcasting this absolute, just, like, verbal diarrhea uh, of, like, you know, Jeff's Jeff's bullshit. This this reminds me so much, like, um, I used to do pirate radio for a very short span of time um, back in Limerick, and, like, yeah, like, the fucking absolute weirdos that would call in and just, like... Sometimes you cut them off, and sometimes it's just like I'm not fucking, I'm not, I'm not even tuned in tonight. I'm just gonna let this happen. And the bizarro stuff that people will come out with, because um, yeah, people who call into pirate radio stations, not the most well-adjusted folks. Um, and I can only imagine the kind of person that watches the evening broadcast at this at this hour of the night. You know, it's it's no good. <laughs> um, if we go for a little wander around, we can chat with slow mo. And this this is one of those lovely things where it's a conversation, and like the other side of the conversation is occluded. But kind of not really, because, um, you know, slow-mo's speech is is rendered as, like, parentheses, um, excited chitters, or, you know, uh, a, a few a few long notes followed by a click and so on. So there's a weird amount of expressive, expressive like, power in the way this is done. Which is, you know, correct. Like, for Corvid, they're, they're very smart and... I spent I spent a lot of time with them around them in the neighborhood. I saw some ravens yesterday that were like the size of large cats. They were huge. Oh yeah. Uh, cool. Did, did you make friends? I, I didn't. I didn't have any like seed on me, but I w- I totally would have. Um, but yeah, uh, lots of corvids in the neighborhood. Uh, uh, ravens, crows, and magpies all. Uh, and uh, yeah, you, you get to know them. They're all like they've all got personalities and. They, they like I, I met one of them who was like imitating human speech. Um, uh, that, that was pretty 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 cool. Uh, so yeah, you would you would expect no less out of slow mo. Mm, yeah, definitely. I need I need to get more familiar with the crows around here. And there's there's a couple that hang around that you can kind of I kind of half recognize, but like it'd be nice to bring out some seed to them. 
Um, but they have a quite deep, deep conversation about Weaver, actually. And it's like, slow-mo knew Weaver, and she was nice to him. And uh, also, Emily perfectly understands what slow-mo is saying, uh, which is really fun. Um, <laughs> it's very lassie. Yeah, exactly, right? She can read a lot from the couple of clicks. Um, they kind of, so, like, it's like, oh, you know, Weaver was nice to you. Oh, you, you make her sound kind of normal. Like the, and then they segue to like the out of towner, this new named character, um, one of our town's little mysteries, um, and then slow mo was like, you know, she's like, oh really? You knew him well? Wow, I had no idea. Like, <laughs> it's like, how are you getting this much from a couple of little clicks and a, a little coup? You know, um, it seems <laughs> that the out of towner was murdered, right? Because she's like, oh, what do you think happened to him? You know. Yes, we, we 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 get all into that in the, ne- in the next act. Uh, they just kind of tease it here, but he's very important uh, to uh, to uh, Act Five. Back on the stage, where Jeff is still going, um, he's this this set of dialogue is I, I this hits me really weirdly because like it's it's the way it trails off is actually kind of strangely upsetting because he's he's going on about a strange piece of glass that he found and he's saying like oh he's he's been trying to get to. The station. He's been trying to get to WVPTV, but he can't find his way there. And he's because he wants them to take a look at it. And like the way it, the way it goes, I'll just read it out. But I don't know where to go because where do you go if it's a PO box? Where do you go to? They don't have a their number. It's it's one of those. I keep pressing zero and it doesn't work, and I don't. And then the line goes dead. The notion of this guy like trying to dial. Maybe he's trying to dial the Bureau of Secret Tourism to get, like, a route on the Echo to come visit this place. But he keeps just mashing zero and it doesn't work. And it's just, there's something so sinister about that line. I, I can't quite put my finger on why it, it's so affecting. But wow, you know? Yeah, it's like... Well, it's, I think it's just all that eeriness about the zero and the Echo, right? It's like... Yeah, it's like... It's kind of like talking to, well, I mean, it's literally like, it's literally like talking to someone in the middle of a storm on a, like a payphone, and uh, you're like, oh, are they okay? And then they get cut off, you know, it's very, very eerie uh, and it's and, and scary. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I guess it's like, you know, not everybody has easy access to the Zero and the Echo. Yeah, I mean, like how would you find your way onto it if you didn't already know it was there? And maybe you might hear about the Bureau of Secret Tourism and think they could help you out, but then you get that fucking useless phone message from from Will, and then you're just, like... Because, like, also, Jeff is obviously kind of not in great shapes mentally, I guess, and, like, there's something very upsetting about the notion of this person just, like, confusedly smashing the zero button and expecting to get through to someone. There's, there's something really quite quite sinister about all that um it's a yeah it's wonderful ambient storytelling well and i think the other thing is that like the other like the hosts are not in dialogue with him he's just he's just rambling endlessly and they're not saying anything which makes it all the more sort of like weird it's very strange um yeah so once the line goes dead uh like ron has fallen asleep and like he's just he's just snoring there um and uh, Maya's going to put a... They're kind of chatting about the burial ground, or the burial mounds, right? While Emily is daydreaming about about the haunting, right? That WEVP TV is haunted by Weaver. And it's, there's some great stuff here. It's like, aren't you supposed to, like, have an exorcism or something? You know, leave, leaving one of these things in place would just be negligence. Uh, but then she's like, I'd miss her, though. 
which I think is quite sweet. You know, you should, you should miss the ghost if they did an exorcism. Yeah, which is, you know, it's like that, that feeling towards, like, revolution, right? It's like, well, what the hell would I do if I did exercise it? If I just gave up? Like, I couldn't live with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect that it would it would work for a short time. You know, one could focus on other things in one's life, but that the nagging feeling, the glare of the basilisk would get you again eventually. And so for me, for me, I think I, I know that it would be pointless to try to, like, give up entirely. I think one could certainly learn to refocus one's efforts if... If one knew that, like, if one was at an introt sect and knew that they were in a dead-end project, you could refocus your efforts without necessarily losing hope, you know? But you might have to go through that aperture of, like, doing a partial exorcism for a little while to uh, to recover from that. Well, then there's so many of the people who go through that, they just become, like, absolute cynics. Yeah, that's not appealing in the slightest, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, the, 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 the Leninists who went capitalist were the most cynical of all. You know, like even more cynical than the people who came up through the the capitalist parties, like the the people who went who were communists who became pro capitalist, like Blair or whatever. Like those are the like the the, the absolutely just like no moral compass at all, purely cynical. They've seen behind the veil, right? Then that they're they don't they don't even have the innocent sort of fig leaf of like being a dumbass libertarian or something, you know. Uh, they're they're perfectly aware of how it works, and they have to become okay with it, and like actually be enthused by it. Or like how like most of the like a lot of the fucking neocons and like the paleocons were like former trots, and there's something especially rancid about that turn, right? Or you look at like the uh, yeah, or you look at like the Italian Communist Party when they became the Democratic Party, and how like cynical they were after that. So yeah, it's it's very or like you know in Eastern Europe with the with the the former communist. Uh, politicians who just became sort of crooks um so yeah it's uh it's uh yeah you just sort of go in for like greed and self-interest after after that sort of disillusionment or uh or i guess you just kind of keep that hope in your heart um or you stick with it and uh you know just see how it turns out You stick with it, right? You stick with it and you get a successful revolution and then fucking 40 years from now, some jackasses down at the community garden are laughing at you for wanting you at the same lawnmower. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And you're Uh, like, was this worth it? (laughs) It'll happen to you. (laughs) Exactly, right? You'll you'll be out of touch someday. That's the best kind of being out of touch, right? Is being kind of unable to deprogram yourself from property relations while all the kids are like hyper commies. Yeah, rendered yourself obsolete in a a very good way. You you are the you are the copy the copy of capital that gets trashed in the or gets uh, tossed in the trash bin. (laughs) Absolutely right. Oh fuck. at this point, there's a crash, a big fucking crash from outside, which shakes Ron awake and he runs out. Very quickly after that, though, the lights go out um, and Emily's left to wander around in the dark. The overlays now take on this really fun shape where they're, they're stars and constellations and she can, she can kind of half see the people standing around and they're outlined as if they were stellar constellations. Uh, it's, it's quite nice. It's very sweet. And again, it's this thing of like, it does seem to be this is kind of how she sees things. This is like actually a part of her perception of these people um, that they're 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 even in the dark they are still bright points of light. Yeah, it's very like Bergsonian, like kind of like you know our our our, our 
the way we actually experience the present as opposed to like that sort of like continuous idea of the present that, that uh, you know, clocks suggest where, where our mind is always a little bit elsewhere and there are always other things that are uh, flooding into the gestalt of our reality. Mm-hmm. The flooding is getting more intense and the, obviously the storm is still getting more intense. Um, there's, you know, there's some fun stuff. Like if you, if you inspect the floor, it's like, oh shit, my socks are getting wet. I, I love having wet socks. There's also this really weird little overlay, which it's sort of in the middle of the room. If you turn a little bit to the right from the, um, from the stage and it, it looks like the kind of traces and plots you get from like um, particle accelerator collisions where it's like lines and then these spirals and the text that Emily thinks to herself is just is that no of course not and it's like was that was it Weaver or something you know like just the vaguest hint of Weaver in the air that she's it had to be Weaver yeah it has to have been because that's the sort of like weird quant stuff that she would have put on the show right yeah, and it looks so out of place compared to the whimsical doodles and little star patterns that Emily draws in her mind. Otherwise, this one thing looks very different. Yeah, it, it's like a premonition that she's having of what's about to happen. Yeah, a collision, right? Like a particle collision. Hmm. Yeah, definitely, right? Um, the lights come back and Nick, uh, uh, just as this new character Nikki comes through the door, Emily thinks of her as being someone who still carries a torch for the out-of-towner. Um, she's going to be reading her poetry at the studio tonight, um, which I think Emily kind of wonders, like, does anyone even tune in for this stuff anymore? She's getting she's getting kind of down on this. And Saturn, of course, is still in retrograde, as Nikki tells us. And I think Emily just kind of, like, carefully nods along with these assertions, um, which is, I don't know, it's nice. Um, Nikki does tell us that the neighbor's barn is basically underwater at this point, and that's what Ron has gone to try and fix. He's trying to help them. Um yeah, they're like, oh, don't worry, he'll take care of it. He, he, he used to be a fireman. It's like, but isn't water and fire a different thing? It's a good line. I'm not, it's like, I'm not sure one certifies you for the other or something like that, they say. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of fun little one-liners in this. Just, uh, Emily's a very clever character, you know. Uh, she has a lot of Shannon energy, actually. in Because, in like, I think Shannon has a lot of those kind of, like, quippy little one-liners. I don't know. Um Maybe there's, there's only so much, um, so many ways you can paint this kind of picture, I suppose. Um, then Nikki reads her poem. Uh, Kyle, do you want to read this one out? Uh, sure. So it goes, uh, What eagle flew you to your final bed? It was not men who brought you there to sleep. The men who left you bloodied then and fled had chosen mud and muddied water creek. Did wild turkeys gobble, dote and care, and wipe the moss beneath your eyelids clear? Did cardinals pull the twigs out from your hair and wash your hands and feet and trim your beard? When wood ducks dressed you in your resting gown and pigeons fashioned shoes from leaves and bark, who then sewed flowers into a burial crown? The one who made your headdress was a hawk. The men who broke your body, where were they? The vultures stayed home on your funeral day. Yeah, real nice. Um, that's real, real sweet little bit of uh, bit of poetry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice meter. I like the uh, the breaking of the rhymes at the ends of those stanzas. Yeah, absolutely. There's also something lovely to it in that. Um, uh, I mean, if you read it eminently, it's just about the out of town. It's it's wonderful, but like 
it's a really nice shift in tone because like you can kind of almost read Conway into it as like like wouldn't wouldn't it be it wouldn't it actually be lovely if while while turkeys just doted over Conway for a little bit you know that'd be nice you know a little bit of softness in amongst the like horrific vortex of like rain and and thunder and um just it, 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 escalating dread and horror that this this whole series has been there's just this really soft little moment that I, I appreciate quite a bit, uh, which is rudely interrupted when Ben yells, Emily, look at the monitor. And she's like, shut the fuck up. We're alive. And he's like, no, we're not. Look. Um, and Weaver has broken through and cut through the, uh, the transmission as they turn their attention to the monitor that slow-mo is standing in front of. And she's there. And this is the broadcast. And then another crash. And we all cut to black while the storm uh, rages on. So... <laughs> Yeah, what a what a fucking what what a what a wonderful fucking interlude. Like this is so tight, so just jammed so dense. With stuff. Yeah, it's jammed with like new characters, new plot stuff, uh, but flows beautifully. Um, none of it's confusing, but there's plenty of tantalizing, curious stuff to latch onto. Yeah, just beautiful. And again, like a really a really nice change of pace from Act Four because like. I think we remarked at the end of Act 4 that, like, I think one can appreciate Act 4 on its own merits while also kind of thinking it could have done with a bit more editing to trim it down a bit. But that even if you take that as it is, the prospect of more of that tone, it was a little bit worrying, like, going into this this uh, interlude and into Act 5. But when I played this interlude for the first time, I was like, no, we're, we've shifted again and we're, we're into a very productive new space. Um... And yeah, I was very reassured by this this interlude. Well, there's so much conceptual novelty here. Like it, it's it's um, there's so many new ideas being brought into the game at this point. Um, like all of this, like all of this stuff about utopia is basically absent from the rest of the game. Like. Like, I've been watching for it because that's what's on my mind from all the reading I'm doing for school, right? But it's 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 very much absent until this interlude. Um, I would say the only sort of hint of it we get is that stuff with Julian, right? The, the eel. Um, uh, and there, there's, of course, the ghost stuff, but that ghost stuff is not really connected to utopia until this point and uh the horses that we see um in the first two acts are ambiguous in what they mean and even when it's uh when they decide to uh go to the zero and they have to they drive on the highway and then they see the horses and then they get on the zero it's it's very it's very ambiguous what they symbolize Whereas the, the association is going to be much, much, much more fixed uh, when we get into Act 5. It really, it really feels like they made a deliberate turn here uh, with a new direction for the game. It's probably why it took a couple of years as well, right? Like, to, to get this out. Because it does... It does feel like this is new material that's grafted on in a very, very elegant way. Um, there's a conscious new direction. So is, is the pivotal line actually Ron's line, or maybe one of their lines about 
the horse as being feral rather than wild. And that this, what the horses symbolize is that they're going from domestication to the potential of wildness again, and that they're, they're going away from their domesticated state, which is, that's what the kind of possibility of revolution is, right? That like, as, as abjected as we are, and like, as, as we could go from total subsumption to some sort of feral existence beyond that kind of uh, subsumption, right? Yes, yes, uh, yes. It's, 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 uh, you know, Marx's idea of like, the higher communism, right? That it, it's, it's the communal, uh, the communal dimension that existed prior to civilization, but it is, uh, is gone through the other end. It's the, it's the Hegelian, uh, uh, what do you call that? Um, not the synthesis, the, um, it's like suspension or like, um, ab- abolition and, and so on. Because like it, I think Aufhebung is like kind of like it's both it, it's a, it's a weird word in German. It's both grasping and like putting down and suspending and like releasing and and so on. There's there's something weird about it. Like it it gets translated as abolition in English. Uh, or or typically sublation is the is the is the term that's used. Right, but it's a weird concept, right? In in Hegel. Yes. Uh, yeah, but so we. I mean, that's what we're talking about with the feral is the, the, you know, that possibility of something that includes capitalism, the the history of capitalism and what capitalism has produced, but in something different and new. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's basically like the, uh, the, um, uh, like the, the, the new dispensation that happens after Christ is on the cross in the new Testament, right? Is it, you know, the the, the 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 Jews enter into the contract with God, covenant with God, but then you know God dies on the cross and they're forgiven, and this is a this is a new age. Um, that it's that kind of kind of uh, change there. I really love this, right? Because like it it means that the horse is becoming feral. Like it it still includes their material history of domesticity. But their domesticity does not exhaust all of their being. There is still the possibility of being beyond their prior conditions, and they can still con- they can continue to develop. But it's it's not like it's not like you know the old notions of free will as being like completely a causal action. This is a material kind of freedom that doesn't deny the material reality of what did happen. But but that's not the end of the story. What what happened can be left behind, in fact, and you can go and do something else and and develop further. It's very actually like there's a there's a wonderful parallel with um, Johnny and Junebug, right? Because they have a distinct material history and then a break from it in which they become feral, and like they 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 don't deny that they were or are robots or that that was their trajectory, but that's not the point anymore. They're, they're, they're specifying themselves. And the horses going feral, you know, there, there's a majesty in that kind of animal being able to determine itself after domesticity. Yeah, I mean, people, uh, uh, for instance, in New Zealand, there are wild horses or uh, even, um, I believe there are some in Alberta too. Uh, but in, in New Zealand, uh, they're, they're quite a, a, a threat to the ecosystem, but people are fiercely uh, 
defensive of them because they're so majestic, right? The, the, the feral horses are so majestic. These are obviously not indigenous to New Zealand. They're horses that got out and became feral. Uh, so it's a very powerful symbol. And I think that the only difference between that and, and uh, you know, Johnny and Junebug is that Johnny and Junebug were never wild. They were only domestic and then feral, right? Uh, I mean, in, in the sense that they were wild, they were just, you know, materials, like... Unformed matter, right? Yeah. Yeah, like silicon and, and steel and stuff, right? And, and, uh, and, and the horses, though, they had a period of being wild, and then were domesticated and bred into being something different. And then under freedom, it becomes something different yet again. But I think that the parallel is absolutely there that you, you mentioned. Yeah. And that's the utopian hope, right? That like, even after domesticity, even after total subsumption, our being is not exhausted yet. That there could, there could in fact be life beyond this, this way of living. Yeah. And and I mean this is this is absolutely at the core of what we're going to see in Act Five. What a wonderful fucking pivot! Yeah. Like because uh, the horses are the horses are the centerpiece. Yeah, this is just it's a really remarkable little pivot at, towards the end of this thing. And like I don't know what 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 a wonderful little message. And I don't know it's it's treated so well, and it's it's so. I don't know, maybe there's, there's something here I appreciate. This. It's like the way I appreciated Junebug's backstory as trans-allegory, right? That, like, it's it gains a lot for just not being the usual gauche kind of fucking narrative, right? This narrative with the horses and the utopian possibilities and, like, decay and the possibility of, like, still going on and all that stuff is just, like, it's so much more powerful because it is complicated and just not it's not the same thing you keep hearing over and over again there's something really novel and and unique that the creators here are getting across um i don't know it it stands out to me because i just don't see this very often you you, you either see like something that treats utopia revolution in, in this very paint by numbers kind of way that just lacks all of this subtlety that we have here yeah wow I think it, you know, it's kind of analogous to the ending of Red Plenty, right? Like what could have been, what could have been, uh, but it takes it in this very generational and broad historical understanding, um, and it, it's just very rich. It's a very rich interlude and then final act. Although they're both quite brief, uh, they're both very, very rich. Mm-hmm. This is so fucking good. Oh my god. Like After we've gotten through the fucking aperture of Act 4 and passed out the other side of it, it's like we're, we're back into just this, like, god damn, this stuff is great. You know, and it, it carries a lot of that same energy as, like, Acts 1 and 2 and, like, I think maybe 3 to a lesser extent, where they're, like, just so dense, so fucking rich, so con- conceptually loaded. Um, your brain can't help but fire in all directions. Um yeah, and I remembered this interlude as being longer than it actually is just because it's so rich. There's so much going on. It's, what, 40 minutes maybe? You know? It's a TV episode. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, wow. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Do we have much else about this one? Well, I mean, next we're on to Act 5, which I think is fantastic as well. Um, and, uh, you know, it really is what cemented this game for me as brilliant 
the the engagement with Utopia uh, that he, they have here and then in Act Five, I think, is really affecting and really profound. Um, and uh, that's why it was like this was my game of the year when it came out. Was like the, this this new element that they've introduced in this interlude of Utopia is 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 what grabbed onto me so much yeah yeah definitely right um i think that this 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 will be game of the year indefinitely for me like it'll be game of the year 2025 you know well i would count out disco elysium it's also a tremendously good game and it it reflects on similar themes in interesting ways disco elysium can have the even numbered years and kentucky or zero gets the odd numbered ones (laughs) they can alternate yeah that's right (laughs) hey well but you know what if it if it works, it's obsolete. Beer beer beer, beer, beer reminds us. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I want people to make make games that are this fucking good and are this conceptually dense and are this much up our alley. You know, <laughs> just want to keep making them. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think like Eliza was fantastic. This is also fantastic. Um, yeah, both superb. But I think you're quite right. This this. Um, the way this ends elevates it to like a work of genius. Um, it's it's just stellar. Um, but hey, um, yeah, cool. So we're gonna have Bob Bob Newbauer, returning champion, on for the final act, and it's gonna be real nice to chat with him about this sort of stuff. It's gonna be good. Can you imagine how fucking long these sessions would have been if we had guests for all of them? Which I think we sort of briefly entertained early on. It's like, no, this would have been a whole year of releases to, to get this out if that was the case. Um, but hey. um, but thanks, listeners, for coming along with us, as always. Um, while you're waiting for the next episode, you can catch up with us on Twitter at General Int- What's our fucking Twitter handle? GIUnitPod. Yeah. GIUnitPod. That's, that's the one. Yeah. Which, which now, now that I think about it is a very awkward handle. Um, but hey, we, can, we can't really get rid of it now. Um, you can also go to generalintellectunit.net and there's links to there uh, from there to all the other stuff. If you go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month, you can help support the show and <laughs> stop the roofs from leaking and uh, get access to our community Discord and hang out, hang out and uh, you know chat about all this sort of stuff. It's a um, really nice little community we've got going on over there. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, does our does our community sort of resemble this like community huddled under a tin roof uh, in the rain to some extent? Maybe no, not really. <laughs> not so much. I, th- I think we're a little. I think we're a little better organized than this. Honestly, it's cozy. Which, you know, it's, I, I, uh, it's cozy, but it's not uh, kind of like tragic comedic in the way that this is. No, we're we're more on that upward trajectory that uh, Junebug has. You know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, think about it. We got that beer series finished. Oh fuck, we did. Yeah, you know, took a whole year, <laughs> but it happened. It was great. What a great fucking series! I need to edit more of those and put them out. But yeah, it's it's great stuff over there on at the community. Um, you should also check out our sister shows on the Emancipation Network and go to emancipation dot network on the internet. Um, a lot of great shows over there. We've got Mortal Science, From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia. And am I forgetting a show? Swampside. Swampside, yeah. God damn. My brain is fucking fried. <laughs> but hey, um, they're all excellent shows. Definitely check them out and like check out the back catalogs for those things. There's a lot of excellent stuff in them in those back catalogs. And like 
I guess also, like, if you're somebody who's just joining us for this series or has joined, uh, I started listening to the show recently, go check out our back catalogue. There's a fucking ton of episodes. Um, and they're all good. Well, I don't know. They're all good. Yeah, we deleted the bad ones. Or we, we never we never released them. That's right, ones. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a, it actually, I mean, because like, I think this year, like, after this point, um, after the series, is probably going to be a bit slower for release sort of stuff, because... Uh, I guess we're just fucking exhausted from COVID world um, and we're going to go a little bit easier on ourselves. But like, that's a great opportunity to just catch up on all the back catalog of stuff. Um, yeah, because most of it is evergreen content. Yeah, we've, we've shied away from like topical stuff. That was like, yeah, we, we age well over here. Um, good, good <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. No, no hard times. No hard times served here. Can you imagine that? I can't imagine that being good whiskey. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, either. No. <laughs> no. Although I do like Kentucky bourbon. So, yeah, yeah, I guess so. But it, it just, it sticks out to me as like, it's probably not great as, as Kentucky bourbon, you know? It's probably like a sub, a sub Jack Daniels or something. Um, but hey. I, I know for a fact that, uh, what is it? Um, Jim Bean? is uh unionized their plants unionized so none of that skeleton nonsense there very good yeah <laughs> so i mean like like the, the the fucking the distillery has to be like one of these creators worked at jack daniels at some point you know and that's that's probably what's going on there maybe maybe yeah i i would be interested to know uh what what like where their particular take on Kentucky, uh, the Kentucky whiskey industry came from. Mm, I mean, yeah, who knows? It could, it could be some other brand that we've never heard of. But hey, yeah, I mean, I guess that's it. So uh, thanks everyone for listening. And we'll catch you again in a couple weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.